Um, so I want to introduce this message by pointing something out that's probably easy to miss. Um, it's not small. It's, it's not unimportant. It's not marginal. This is actually life or death for us as Christians. This is either what makes us or, or what breaks us. It's going to mean the difference. What I'm talking about today will mean the difference between whether or not you suffer well as a Christian or whether or not you absolutely fall to pieces at the first sign of trial, distress, disappointment, rejection, betrayal, how you receive criticism, how you receive disagreement and conflict with, with another believer or unbeliever, what happens when the, the diagnosis of cancer comes, what happens when you lose your job, when you lose a loved one unexpectedly, how we face all of those things are really going to be determined by what I'm talking about today. So this really is, it's critical. And if you were reading, as I said earlier, through the Gospel of Mark for the first time, this really short passage may not reach out and grab you, but what may happen, however, is you may get this sense of deja vu. Uh, haven't, we, haven't we already read this? This sounds familiar. Yeah, you have. You read this back in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, I think. You've just encountered it in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, and guess what? You're going to encounter it again, the very next chapter, just about identical words, Jesus is teaching his disciples the same thing over and over and over because they are just like us. We forget the most important thing in the world. We forget the, the greatest news uh, that's ever hit the planet. He knows that. God knows that. See, the disciples are just like us. They know that they are on an important mission. They know that this is going to change their lives forever. forever. It's going to reshape history. It's going to change the world and turn it right side up. Uh, they just don't have a clue what it is. <laughs> They have forgotten what Jesus' mission is, and therefore they've forgotten what their message is. Those things are inextricably linked together. You can't have one without the other. So Jesus, again, is pulling his disciples aside, and he's explaining to them, look, guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to a cross. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be handed over. The word in Greek actually means betrayed, which is why it scares the mess out of them. I'm going to be betrayed, passive tense. Somebody's going to betray me. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man is going to be delivered to man, and they're going to kill him, and on the third day I'm going to rise. And they're afraid. They misunderstand it. They don't want to talk about it. And I just want to be honest with you. They're disciples. They've already followed Jesus for three years. You can't say they're unbelievers. You know, the last series we did was Blind Spots. They're like the man that was taken out of the village and healed he saw things clearly, but not totally clearly. He saw men like trees walking. These disciples are, are there. And, and so often, friends, we're there too. We forget, why did Jesus come? You know, is this the, uh, a self-improvement project? Is that what Christianity is? Kind of a New Year's resolution all year long? Constantly turning over a new leaf, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're going to do it this time. We're going to obey God. We're going to be faithful. We're going to try harder. We're going to do better. So often, that's what Christianity is reduced to. And I wish there was a more powerful word than reduced, because that's actually heresy. And so Jesus is pulling the disciples aside here, and he's telling them what we need to hear. And in fact, the, the very reason that we have the epistles, that's just a fancy word for letters in the New Testament. You guys know, if you have a New Testament, it starts out Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then there's a bunch of other letters that we call epistles. And do you know what that you know what the assumption is underlying that? We need more exposure to the gospel than we got with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It wasn't enough. That was just the beginning. We need more. We need a lot more. 
That's why we're constantly taken back to this world-shaping, history-making, life-changing news called the gospel. And that's really what our sermon is about today. So here's the outline, okay? Don't be intimidated. I know there's a bunch of stuff up there. Um, There's two parts to this, the what and the why. The what is what you really see in this passage, and I'm going to branch out and use really the entire New Testament, but not preach on every book, don't worry, to prove the rest of these points. So the what? We need constant exposure to the gospel. We need, as Christians, I'm using we intentionally, we, disciples, followers, the converted, the redeemed, we still need constant exposure to the gospel. And the second point, we are prone to fear and misunderstand it. And another way to say that would be we're prone to be ashamed of it. Sometimes we're prone to be offended by it. If you can't acknowledge that as a believer, I think you've misunderstood the, both the profundity of the gospel and the offense of it. It's an offensive message. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers in history, said this. He said, if Christians have never been tempted, at least, to be ashamed of the gospel, I doubt very seriously whether they've truly understood it, whether the penny has really dropped in their heart, and they know this offensive message that they're carrying around. It's offensive, but it also is life-changing, see? That's the paradox of Christianity. The lifestyle is attractive, but the message that empowers that lifestyle is radically offensive because it concerns a cross And a cross represents defeat, death, humiliation, weakness, agonizing pain. It's the way that a criminal would be executed. It represented a curse to a Jew. He who hangs on a tree is what? Cursed. That's our message. That has the power to to change our lives. And the disciples knew that, and so they were afraid and they misunderstood it. So the why is, uh, the what is we need constant exposure to the gospel. Secondly, we're prone to fear and misunderstand it. And then here's the reason why, because it exposes the depth of our problem. And the gospel also proves the depth of his love. So that's what we're up against this morning. Point number one, we need constant exposure to the gospel. Look at verse 30 and 31 in this passage. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples Um, I'm not trying to be a Greek nerd or anything, okay? But the word teaching, there's tenses in Greek that that help us understand what was going on. And that word teaching is in a tense called the imperfect. And all that means is this. This was a continual action. Jesus was constantly doing this. He repeated this. I mean, there's three instances I'm going to show you in, in Mark 8, 9, and 10 that he did it, but probably he did it all the time. He was constantly pulling them aside, you know, like you do the minivan. When you're with the kids, you're like, all right, I'm pulling the car over. We got to talk got to have a family powwow. Jesus did that constantly. And look, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Why? Why is Jesus going into secret MO here? It's because now the miracles are pretty much done. He is focusing the last week of his life. Jesus is focusing all of his attention, all of his energy on training the 12 disciples. And what's so interesting to me is, do you know what he starts to train them with? The gospel. The gospel. So often, see, we think that the Gospels, that's just the ABCs of Christianity. That's the entry point. That's the basic milk. You know, you you get on after that to the real meaty stuff, the deep things of God. And Jesus says, no, this is the deep things of God. You you can't ever plumb the depths of the Gospel. It's the diamond through which there's, there's millions of multifaceted angles you can look at it with. This is it. This is the mission. And everything else is just a new and fresh way to look at the Gospel and understand that message. So let me show you what I mean. Um, in Mark chapter 8, 
I'm not going to read all of this because I preached on it a few weeks ago, but he says the same thing. Um, you know what? I missed, I missed the actual part right after that where he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered to the elders, the priest, um, and he's going to be killed on a cross, and, they, and Peter pulled him aside, remember, uh, and said, far be this from you, Lord. This is never going to happen to you. So that was the first time. Next is the passage we just read. That's the second time that he says the same thing. And then third, I'm going to preach on this in a few weeks, Mark chapter 10. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days again, he will rise. So that's three times in three chapters. Jesus is saying essentially the same thing. And let me hit the pause button for a minute. I don't want to assume anything. I'm using the word gospel here. That's, that's built into one of my points. We need constant exposure to the gospel. I want to make sure that we're all using the same dictionary here this morning. What do I mean when I say gospel? The gospel simply means good news in Greek. It's a simple word that everyone would have known in the first century. It was a military term. When a king went out to fight a battle, uh, a big battle that the the health and the well-being of the village depended on the outcome of that battle. And if the king was victory and the army defeated its opponent, he would send a runner back, usually a marathon runner that had to run a long way, and he would be carrying euanglion. That's the word that means good news. He would return with good news. Good news. On behalf of this village, the war has been fought and the enemy has been defeated and you have nothing to fear, nothing to hide anymore. That's what the word gospel means. It's a declaration is all it is. It's a declaration of something that was done on your behalf, not something you did. The gospel is not good advice. It's not something for you to do. The gospel is good news. It's a declaration of something done for you by another. And that something is Jesus went to a cross. He bore the wrath of God. He absorbed the fury and the anger of God on our behalf, and he rose from the grave. That's the good news, okay? That's what I mean when I say gospel, and there's a whole bunch of different ways to look at the gospel, which is what the whole New Testament is. And we need constant exposure to all of that. So, 1 Corinthians was written to Christians. Did you guys know that? Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthian church. He planted that church. And a few years into the plant, they're, they're going crazy. They're having serious problems. And he wrote, them, he wrote them two letters, actually. The first letter he wrote them, he made it plain. This is to the saints at Corinth to the called out ones, to the church. So he's writing to Christians. In order to become a Christian, you have to hear the gospel and believe it. Repent of your sins and trust Christ, right? So he's writing to people who have already been exposed to the gospel, they've already believed it, and they've become Christians. But he says something really interesting in chapter 15. Look at it with me. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, you say, why in the world are you showing us this slide? Because I, I want you to notice something. Paul's writing to Christians, but he's talking about the gospel. And the question I want you to ask yourself is why? They've already heard the gospel. You've already heard the gospel. Why am I talking about it again? 
Well, he says you stand in it. This gospel has power. It's not like a, I don't know, I grew up on a, on a farm in the country and we were constantly building fences and I would have these post hole diggers and I would have to drive this dead piece of wood into the ground so that it could stand firm, right? He's not talking about that. He's talking about standing like a tree. It's planted deep and the roots are nourished and, and, and growth goes down deep and then growth goes up and it's healthy and it flourishes like Psalm 1. Whoever's planted by the, the river will flourish and bear big, healthy, low-hanging fruit. So Paul says this gospel continually exudes this power, this transformative power in your life. You don't believe it and then put it on the shelf and wait for outreach and evangelism. No, you constantly need to be reminded of this gospel. And it's interesting to me that the Corinthian church was a messed up church. I mean, they, we went through that book here. Remember how messed up they were? And what's the solution that Paul gives them? The gospel. He starts there. Every solution to every spiritual problem in a Christian's life begins with the gospel. It does. Because you have to ascertain and discern at what point have you misunderstood the gospel or misapplied it. Because spiritual problems are believing problems. Maybe we've not believed the promises of God. Maybe we're instead clinging to these commandments, which are good. The law is good and just and holy. But the law always follows the gospel. Promise first, command second. And that's what the Apostle Paul is pointing out here. And he also says, I delivered to you as of first importance. Do you hear that? He's reminding them, look, this is the most important reality in the world. This is what every Christian needs to be reminded of. This is what every church needs to focus on. It's so important. And then one more. I don't want to kick a dead horse here. But he wrote the letter to the Romans too. The Romans were a church. Look how he starts. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then a few verses later... Verses 15 and 16, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, time out. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just fell off the, the hay wagon here, but they already heard the gospel preached to them. That's how they became a Christian, right? So why is Paul saying, hey, church in Rome, hey, believers, I'm really looking forward to visiting you so I can preach the gospel to you? Is he insulting them and saying, I know that you're in church and you've been falsely converted and you need to hear the good news? No. He's saying, I know that you're Christians and that you need to hear more good news and I'm going to bring it to you. That's amazing to me. And then he goes on to say this powerful verse, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. He doesn't say it was the power of God. He said it is, present tense. The gospel continually exudes this transforming power in our lives. And that's why we need constant exposure to it all the time, every day. So, wow, that's page one. How are we doing here? No, I promise. It's not going to be an overly long message, okay? Just bear with me. Um, so, let me ask you a question. If we need constant exposure to the gospel and it has power, what does that tell you? It tells you a lot of things. Number one, that we're, we're weak. And I know Christians don't like to hear that, but let me, let me qualify it. So long as we are divorcing our efforts to live the Christian life and live on mission for Jesus, apart from the saving event um, that gave birth to the Christian church, we're weak. Just like the disciples, remember last week? They said, why couldn't we cast this demon out? What did Jesus say? Oh, oh, this kind? This kind only comes out by prayer. So you try to do it on your own. You didn't ask for my help. And that's what the gospel is. There's only two types of prayer in the Bible. Thank you and help me, <laughs> you know? And the Christian message is, I've fallen and I can't get up. That's what the whole Old Testament says, right? 
And Jesus comes and he says, I know. I know you've fallen. I know you can't get up. You're far worse than you ever imagined. And I'm here to secure your salvation and continually sanctify you and form, form you into my image. The gospel is the power not just for justification, that means the point you were saved, but for sanctification. That means you're becoming more and more like Jesus as you behold the wonder and the beauty and the power of what he did for you. There's no other power available, none. And the Holy Spirit uses the gospel. The Holy Spirit has to open our eyes to help us see uh, how amazing the sacrifice, how radical the sacrifice of Jesus was. Thank you, both of you. (laughs) So Jesus is reminding them of, of his purpose. The great purpose of his coming into the world was to die in our place. We should never forget that. And listen, that's why God gave us so many reminders. I just did a wedding yesterday. You know what the Bible says a wedding is? It's fun. There's food. It's great. It's a good time. Celebration. Big party. But he says, it's a picture of the mystery of the gospel. That's what Paul says. That's why I love weddings. Because you know what? We forget the gospel. And he gave us the Lord's Supper. Why? This do in remembrance of me. Why? We forget the gospel. He gave them a Passover feast in the Old Testament. Why? Why did they have that feast every single year? Because guess what they forgot? They were delivered from Egypt by a foreign power, God. He had to come and rescue them. They couldn't. They weren't clever enough. They weren't powerful enough. They didn't have enough ingenuity and wisdom to rescue themselves. And listen, we don't either. Even after we're saved, we still don't. That's why you don't put the gospel on a shelf. You pull it back out and behold in new and fresh ways every day um, what Jesus did for you. We need that, guys. That's what this church is all about. Our title is not haphazardly just out of a grab bag, grace life. We continually need to be confronted with grace. Sounds crazy. Confronted with grace? Yes. It's a confrontational message. We need God's grace to be rescued. If we're left to ourselves, we will most certainly drift back into, you know, the food that won't really heal us. Tell you a story to illustrate. Alice bought a parrot on Monday. She went home. The parrot didn't talk. She went back to the store the next day and she was told, get a ladder. She bought a ladder. She went home. The bird still didn't talk. She went back the next day. They said, you need one of these fancy plastic trees. That'll do the job. She went home. Parrot still didn't talk. Every day she goes back. This day it's you need this shiny parrot toy. This day you need a mirror. Finally, next Monday comes. Alice is waiting outside the pet shop with her cage and the parrot inside, and she's in tears. The owner walks out, says, what in the world happened? She said, my parrot's dead. He said, did it ever say anything? And she said, you know... Right before it died, it looked at me and it said, do they sell anything uh, besides toys at that pet store? Like maybe, I don't know, food? (laughs) Listen, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we will end up as Christians like Alice's parrot did in a really crowded cage full of all these tinkets and toys and flashy things, but without the gospel. And we'll be just as dead as that parrot was. In some ways, we will. I know you can't lose your salvation, but listen... You can live cycles of defeat and weakness because I've seen it, because I've done it before. You know how long it took me to rediscover the power of the gospel? About 10 years from the point I got converted. I was, I was moving on to, I thought, bigger, better, deeper things. And I know we're all like that. Let me give you an illustration. I preached my guts out one Sunday. I know, it feels like I do every Sunday. I leave here and I'm disemboweled, you know. Um, but I, one Sunday, it was a particularly, man, I, I just... I felt like I was just heralding the glories of the gospel. Not, I'm not putting a feather in my hat. I just felt, man, this is an important message. This is what this church is built on. 
And I exited, we prayed, and this brand new guest, first time he had ever been to the church I was pastoring at the time. And he ran up to me, shook my hand, he said, man, I need to talk to you. And I'm like, man, that's great, conviction. He came under conviction. He wants to follow Jesus. He wants to join the church and tithe and serve and all of that. And he said, we got to have lunch, man. What you said concerns me. And I said, what? What I, what I said up there? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, okay, I'm not perfect, you know. I've, I've never met you before. This is odd. <laughs> you know, usually you don't critique people you've never met before after they've preached. But I'm not, hey, I'm a human. I'm fallen and I need correction. And so he said, what you said to those people was so basic today. It's so milk that you, you could end up hurting your church if this is all you ever talk about. And I said, the gospel? He said, yeah, whatever it was. That you, I said, I just... I just preached the gospel, and he said, look, man, your church needs the deep things of God. It needs deep things. And I said, um, okay, tell, tell me what deep things you're talking about. He said, like, he said, I've been studying the ancient Hebrew name for Satan. Um, and he said, archaeological evidence, has been, I mean, he waxed eloquent about all this peripheral, marginal stuff. And I said, the Hebrew name for Satan, it's Satan. <laughs> that's not deep. That's not deep at all. And he said, no, but man, your people need to know this stuff. And I'm like, why? How would knowing the name of Satan in Hebrew help them do anything to know? <laughs> it's ridiculous. And he said, man, I'm just telling you. And it turns out as I got to talking to him, this man had been living in willful, open disobedience for years, for years. And I just kind of had to tell him, look, man, if, this, if knowing these deep things of God is, is going to lead me to live like you, then no thanks. I'm you know, that's the, the one side of that. And the other side of that is the gospel is the deep things of God. You know, First Peter says that the angels desire to look into and investigate the message of the prophets and the message of the apostles. Did you know the Bible says that? Angels are intelligent beings. And yet they, the, the word they desire to stoop, it's, it's, this, it's this word in Greek that, that means to, to stoop down and get on the edge of your seat and peer over kind of like my kids do when they come up here to look down at this gallery. It's interesting. The, the gospel is eternally interesting to angels who are not stupid. So let me ask you a question. Have, do you believe that you have plumbed the depths of the glories of who Jesus is and what he's done on our behalf? May it never grow old to us, guys. If it ever grows old, we're, we need hospice. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. The whole Bible is, is, is strategically and deliberately and intentionally laid out so that we can position ourselves and see all the different angles of the glory of Jesus. It takes more than one glance. Thinking that you can like look at the gospel one time and be good for life is like thinking you can take a breath of oxygen and be good for your life. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. God gives us all these reminders like food and breathing. I think those are natural reminders. You need this. You need this message. Don't forget it. Don't forsake it. It's the same thing. Nothing can replace the gospel. It's not a ticket that you submit at the door and you get your entrance and you rip it up. It's not. It's a perpetual reminder of how deep and profound our problem was and how radical was Christ's solution. That's what it is. And if you look at the rest of the New Testament, honestly, every single epistle is set up that way. All of them. I don't care which epistle you go to. You're going to find gospel theology. Just, it's going to be pregnant with the truths of who Jesus is, what he came to do. And then, and only then, is it going to give you a list of commands. Like Romans. You know, uh, I had that first slide up, one of the first slides up. Paul said, 
I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel to you Romans. And you know what he does in the first 11 chapters of Romans? He lays out one of the richest, deepest, most amazing and incredible explanation of the plan of salvation. Took him 11 chapters. At the very end, he's like, oh, the riches, the depths, the wisdom of God. Who can even comprehend it? It's so deep. And then chapter 12 starts out this way. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you to make your bodies a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, Paul doesn't start in chapter 1 saying, <clears throat> now you've got to get yourself together here, and you've got to crawl up on this altar and sacrifice your life, and don't be conformed to the image of the world. That's what we do so often as Christians. We start with the commands, right? Get it together. Come on, let's do this. I do that with my kids sometimes. <laughs> Instead of, hey, time out. First, first, let's remind them what Jesus did for them, right? I mean, guys, that's even how the Old Testament commandments work. Have you ever read the Ten Commandments? You know how they start out? Behold, the Lord your God who redeemed... I'm paraphrasing here, okay? The Lord your God who redeemed you, who redeemed you from the Egyptians, who redeemed you from Pharaoh. You are His children. You are His treasure. You belong to Him. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Don't covet. Have you ever noticed all the commands follow the gospel of the Old Testament, the Passover? Since God rescued you, since you belong to Him, since He loves you, therefore let your life be lived in gratitude. Not trying to earn God's favor and become His child. You already are His child. Man, boom. Doesn't that blow your mind? You don't live your life trying to earn enough brownie points to cozy up to God and say, see, I'm all right. I'm worth redeeming. Man, that's every other religion in the world is you got to reach enlightenment you got to get karma you got to follow these pillars it's true you go explore all the religions of the world and you're going to find a to-do list a self-help book every year even and i hate to say it even in christian bookstores you're going to find hundreds if not thousands of self-help books every year you're going to find new ones you know why because the year before those other ones that were put out didn't work they don't work. Christianity is not a self-help religion. It's not. It's not human effort. The gospel is divine accomplishment. That's the difference. Christianity says it is finished. See, Jesus came to pay our debt. We couldn't pay it. He did. He has. It's done. It's finished. Paid in full. And now the gospel says live your life out of gratitude for that amazing sacrifice. Let that be what drives you to obedience. Not legalism. Not feeling the, the weight of guilt and condemnation and so you just feel so terrible you're going to live this way. No. Living out of happiness and joy, overflowing gratitude for what he did for you and that it's finished. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here. This is what Matt Chandler said. He said, The idolatry that exists in man's heart always wants to lead him away from his Savior and back to self-reliance no matter how pitiful that self-reliance is or how many times it has betrayed him. Can you identify with that? We always drift. It's like, you know, we live near the ocean. I took my kids out to Spongeboard the other day. And I've got a little six-year-old. He doesn't understand currents. We tried to help him. His grandpa's tried to help him. He can't understand the currents, how dangerous they are, how fast they are. So he goes out. He's boogie boarding. I'm messing with our toddler. I look up. Marshall's a mile down here. I mean, literally. He's a half mile, half mile down the beach. And I go get him, and I pull him out, and I say, buddy, go see your mom. And he's walking straight ahead off the beach. And he's like, wait a minute, where'd mom go? And I'm like, your mom's 
down there in front of that thing down there. You know, we're, our lives are the same way. If, if, if we don't remember this message I'm preaching you today, we will drift. It will happen. The question is, how far will you drift and will you actually get pulled under? Because you can just get so swallowed up in self-improvement and you forget the sacrifice of Christ. It can destroy your joy. It can. It can wreck you. And you will. You'll fall to pieces when people criticize you. If you're thinking it's all riding on your shoulders, you can't handle criticism, you'll wither, you'll languish because you, you feel like you had this need to prove yourself and you need the acceptance of other people. But the gospel says you already have the acceptance of the only one whose opinion that matters. Christ, because of Christ, you've already been accepted by God. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have to hide anything from anybody. You've been justified. You're declared righteous and blameless. You've got nothing to prove to anybody. Man, that frees me. When I come up here to preach, I don't have to prove anything to any of you. And I love you. I'm not scolding you. I love you, but I'm not up here to prove anything to even myself anymore. I know my sermons stink. It's okay. Jesus died for my sermons, you know? And he died for your parenting. And he died for you as a spouse. I mean, husbands, how are we doing with love your wife as Christ loved the church? I mean, is that not a tall order? I said that yesterday at a wedding, and I heard, I, I heard the groom gulp. <laughs> I'm like, you heard that before, haven't you? And then I was able to share, hey, look, this is not a contract. This is a covenant. There's a big difference. Do you know that? Every other religion in the world is a contract. And a contract says, as long as your goods and services um, are up to snuff, if they're up to standard, we're good. The relationship is good. The goods and services provided are at the center, and the relationship's over here. Jesus says, in Christianity, you can cut that. This is no contract. This is a covenant. Covenant, 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 meaning this. No matter what your goods and services are, I'm not going anywhere because I've already paid it in full. I've already provided the perfect righteousness that God's law demands and requires of you. So it's been paid in full. So in some sense, the pressure's off. But in another sense, you're free to obey, right? That's the difference between a covenant and a contract. Jesus made a covenant with us and it was signed in his own blood. And man, that's a glorious message. I hope that none of us ever forget. D.A. Carson said, this of the Apostle Paul, all the different ways he talks about the gospel. He said, Paul cannot long talk about Christian joy or Christian ethics or Christian fellowship or the Christian doctrine of God or anything else without finally tying it to the cross. Paul is gospel-centered. He is cross-centered. And then D.A. Carson went on to say this, I fear that the cross, and by cross he means gospel. I'm using those terms interchangeably. Don't get confused. I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned by Christians, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place that it must occupy. Listen, guys, I get it. I know new things come along. Some things are good. Some things are better. But there's only one thing that is the best in the church, and it is the gospel, the message that Jesus Christ came to rescue and renew his creation, starting with us. The heart's changed, and then the world, the world we live in, we begin to be agents of change for God. The Holy Spirit uses us to transform relationships, and in some sense, culture. Pretty amazing. Okay, where are we going to go with this? Uh, sometimes you just got to put your notes aside. You know what? I just, want to, I just want to talk about this a little bit longer, and we'll uh, maybe, maybe forego some of the slides. Um, I wrote a little bit of a teaser for this particular sermon, and I said something, something like this. Um, how do Christians 
constantly experience transformative power that leads to change. How do we do that? What power is it? Because listen, some of you sitting out here today, you may, you may be fighting a losing battle with lust right now. Maybe there's pornography. Maybe there's betrayal in your marriage, infidelity. I don't know. But maybe you're a Christian and you're fighting, but you feel like you're on the losing side of that battle. Maybe some of you do what I mentioned earlier. You, you had this radical insecurity and, and nobody can talk to you about any weaknesses they perceive in you. Even if they're trying to help you, you're, you're too defensive. This mechanism, this wall goes up. Uh, and so you're, any criticism, and, and you're very critical of anybody that wants to give you counseling or anything like that. Um, other people, maybe, maybe it's something as, as, as crazy as you just str- struggle with lying. You just feel like you embellish the truth all the time. Even if you're telling a story about, say, a fishing trip you went on. I don't know. The fish was this big and we caught this many of them. Maybe you're constantly telling lies that don't even matter. Or maybe you, you've stolen things in the past. Or maybe you struggle with too much drinking. I don't know. Or that you're lazy. Here's the question. Here's the million dollar question. And this, to me, this is where the rubber meets the road for Christians. How do you experience change as a Christian? What is it that you need to experience change? Let's say for the person who's anxious. And they're sad because they're anxious all the time. And it's not some kind of a organic depression that we've talked about before. This is a spiritual problem. They're anxious. You're anxious maybe about everything, about tomorrow, about whether you're going to be able to have enough food, whether your kids are going to turn out okay, uh, whatever it is. Health, maybe you're a hypochondriac. So what changes you from somebody who's anxious to somebody who has a fundamental confidence in the future? What is it? Is it going to be Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which is an amazing passage? I would never pit one verse of Scripture against the other, but listen, it takes wisdom sometimes as a Christian to know what verses do I need that are going to be more helpful than, say, others. Because I've counseled people that have been anxious, and they're telling me, I'm anxious, I'm scared, I'm afraid, and I'm almost, if there was another person in the room, I'd be elbowing them going, I can't wait to unload on this guy. I'm like, are you, are you finished? Okay, I got the answer, my friend. Look, look here, look what, look what Paul says to the Philippians. <clears throat> be anxious for nothing. Close the book and step back. You're welcome. See, you didn't know that, did you? you? You didn't know that you're sinning by being anxious and that the Bible actually says you shouldn't do that and that you should stop like yesterday. Stop it. Just stop it. I've counseled that way before. Have you? Maybe you've counseled yourself that way. I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop this. The Bible says there's a, there's a better way. And listen, the commands are important. But what is it that drives the commands? I mean, you can, you can, you can um, obey God. You can, like, I'm not going to take that. I'm not going to steal that. But obedience and change are not always the same thing. Let me give you an example. I've said this before, and maybe you know the answer now. When is a thief no longer a thief? You know how most people answer that question? When he stops, wrong. (laughs) Wrong. He's not, he's still a thief. He just took a vacation. A thief is no longer a thief when he's honest and generous, see? You understand? A a person who struggles with lust is changed when they're pursuing purity. And they have integrity. And the person who's anxious is actually changed when they have confidence in the future. And they're comprehending God's sovereignty. But how does that happen? Well, I I have a verse for you, okay? This is a pretty crazy verse. Let me fast forward this to it. Man, those are some good quotes too. Okay, check this out. Titus chapter 2. Written to a young man like me in ministry, okay? He's writing to a pastor. 
And he's telling him, look, teach the people these things. And here's one of those things. Renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. That's quite a list. That actually means in Greek, say no. (laughs) Say no to ungodliness. What's ungodliness? Any disobedience at all in any shape, form, or fashion. Just say no to it. Paul's telling Titus, teach this to the church. And while you're at it, Gain self-control. Master yourself. Be disciplined in your thought life. Don't eat the dessert when you're a glutton, right? Don't have the extra glass of wine or whatever. Don't go to the flea market if you're a kleptomaniac. I don't know. Fill in the blank. And live upright and godly lives in the present age. Now, here's my my question. How in the heck are we going to do that? Can you give me some help, Paul? You know what? Paul does. And man, I hope that you don't miss this. Here, it's over here somewhere in my notes. I'll tell you what he says. Um, this, is, this is how most people, let, let me back up a little bit. This is how most people do, try and do that. They say, no, because it'll make me look bad, which is true. Sinning makes you look stupid most of the time, right? No, because I'll be excluded from my social circle. If I obey Christ in this area and deny myself, I'm, uh, there's some gates that are going to drop for me socially. And No, because then God will not give me health, wealth, and happiness, Right? No, because God will judge me and may send me to hell. No, because I'll hate myself in the morning and lose self-respect. Now, some of those are good, are good motives. Some of those are powerful motives. But missing from that list is the most powerful motive. You know what it is? It's what the Apostle Paul says next. And I want to read it to you. If you have a Bible, real quick, turn over to Titus. If you don't, that's okay. I'm going to read it for you. These pages are sticking together. It's after 2 Timothy, if you're looking. 1 and 2 Thessalonians, I think, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. Titus chapter 2. Now, check this out, okay? I'm going to read the rest of this passage. I'm going to back up to verse 11. Verse 11, here it is, in context. See, I did what we should never do. I kind of chopped a verse in half because I want to illustrate something for you. I'm going to back up to the very beginning of Titus chapter 2, verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, did you hear that? What is it that's going to help you say no and renounce ungodliness? He says, for the grace of God that has appeared and trains us. Did you know that the greatest teacher in the world to say no to sin is the grace of God? That word trains us. In Greek, it means to coach to discipline, even in some cases to argue. Now that's amazing to me. What Paul is telling Titus and us is sometimes you have to argue the gospel with yourself and say Jesus is better than whatever it is you're about to do. So you can say no to that while saying yes to this. There's always a corresponding gospel promise with every temptation to sin, always. And I know the bigger question that comes out of this is, well, look, Doc, uh, what, what if in the moment... 
the grace of God, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the gospel empower me like you're saying it's supposed to. I still feel captivated and fascinated by this temptation to sin. What do I do? Should I just wait and not obey because I don't want to dishonor God? Some people ask that question. The answer is no, okay? And there's a really helpful illustration. I hope this is making sense to you. Here's an illustration to help you understand this. Um, Imagine that there is a little bird, and he's a baby bird, and he can't fly yet. So he falls out of his nest because he can't fly. And he hits the ground, and out of nowhere, Mr. Fox, Hungry Fox, sees that bird in his sight line. And the bird sees the fox and says, oh no, this is it. I'm about to, to meet the big bird in the sky, right? But he notices just before that fox pounces this little bitty hole in the base of a tree trunk nearby. And so what does the bird do? Well, it does what we would do. It hobbles over there as fast as it can into the safety of that tree trunk and escapes the fox, right? Now, that's great. Did it do the right thing? (laughs) Yeah, it did. If it didn't, it would die. And I would equate that with when we obey God just out of, for example, let's say I'm really angry at you, Bill, and I want to throw a rock at you and hit you in the head. What's going to keep me from doing that if the gospel doesn't motivate me? Maybe that that's against the law and that your wife may jump on me and beat me and that I may even go to jail, God forbid, right? Now, yeah, God forbid, pastor goes to jail and the whole world sees it. Um, Is that a motivating factor? Yes, it is. But listen, what if that's the only motivator that I ever use? What if I'm only saying no to myself because I'm scared of the outcome? I'm living in fear and guilt and condemnation. Maybe I'm living in legalism because I'm going to say no to myself because God's going to change his mind about me. I would say this, that illustration. If that little bird always just runs into the base of that tree, guess what? It's never going to be able to do what God created it to do, which is what? Fly. And eventually it's going to get eaten. And I will tell you this. I know a lot of Christians, and I've been one of them, that live their life motivating themselves the same way that little bird in this illustration does from that fox. They're still running and they're still hiding in the bottom of a tree. And other Christians who understand the gospel, God's opening their eyes, there's freedom, there's joy, there's gratitude, they're soaring like an eagle. See, that's what God made us to do. It really is. And I want to give you a final illustration and we're going to close, okay? Jared Wilson wrote a book called Gospel Wakefulness. And I cannot commend it to you highly enough. One of the best books I've ever read. And he talks about sometimes it takes Christians a while before they rediscover the power of the gospel in their own life. Um, And it's like smelling salts when you've been out of it for years. And he illustrates it by saying this. It's like a man who is driving his car and it stalls on the railroad tracks, right on top of the railroad tracks. And all of a sudden, he hears it, the horn of a train coming around the corner. He takes the keys, he wiggles it, he pumps the gas. He's trying to get the car started. Uh, The train's getting closer, that's not working. So now he's trying to unfasten his seatbelt. He's not going to be able to do it in time. His hands are shaking, he's nervous, he's sweaty, and he realizes that I'm about to be hit. And so he braces himself for the hit that's going to come, and it does, from behind him. A truck, seeing what's happened, bumps into the back of this car and pushes it over the railroad tracks into safety, and then this truck behind him is obliterated into a million pieces. This guy cannot believe it. He looks in the rearview mirror, and he sees that truck, and he sees the gore. He jumps out of his car. He's just astonished. He's trying to fiddle to get his cell phone out, and and at the same time, he's just grateful for this man. Why would this man do this for me? Why would he sacrifice like that? He's in disbelief. He's weeping. He sits on the 
the, the trunk of his car and he's dialing 911 and then he hears a whimper. inside the trunk and he opens it up this is an illustration of why am i crying for crying out loud <laughs> i guess because i have six kids and i can see them being in the trunk of my car right he hears a whimper in the trunk of his car and he jumps out he opens it and one of his children had crawled in the trunk playing hide and go seek before he left for work and he didn't know it so what happens to that man's joy and gratitude in that moment? How much higher is it than what it was before? See, before, he was rescued. That's wonderful. I really want to know more about this man that did that. But when he discovers, oh my goodness, my life was just saved in the life of my family. I'm never going to be the same. I'm never going to forget this. I want to know everything about that man. Who is he? Where did he come from? Who's his family? How can I thank him? See, that, Jared Wilson says... It's gospel wakefulness. And that kind of gratitude and fuel and power can only come to us when we constantly expose ourselves to the gospel in, in new and fresh ways. And listen, there's 66 books here, guys, to do it. That's why I'm constantly harping on, are you reading the Word? Are you praying this back to God? It's not a legalistic checklist. It's, I know, you have to strategically position yourself in a place where you're going to behold the Son of God and be changed into His image from one level of glory to the next. So are you doing that? Are you constantly exposing yourself to the gospel? And I'll close with that. Um, there's some really good resources that I really want to recommend to you if you're into reading good books. These are some what I would call gospel-centered books to help you do what I've been talking about today. And we're going to come back around this when we get to the next chapter because Jesus is going to do it again. And I'm going to talk about it again in a different angle so that we can appreciate what God's calling us to do here. But Timothy Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. C.J. Mahaney wrote a book called The Cross-Centered Life. Matt Papa wrote a book called Look and Live. Jared Wilson's Gospel Wakefulness, I just mentioned that. And of course, J.D. Greer's book, Gospel. I'll have Melissa include this in some uh, emails that we send out to you guys and if you have the money and, and you want to, I think these books will really encourage you and help you. Expose yourself to the gospel. That's the only thing that has any power to change our lives and, and to conform us to the image of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.